This is a Founding Media podcast. Welcome back to Apple A Day Doc Talk. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Dr. Ram Dean, and we have a special guest today here, Dr. Matthew Bindewall. Thank you, Matthew, for coming in today. Thank you for having me. All right. So we're going to talk about a, a very uh, important topic here is breast augmentation. Um, very commonly done, and I typically have a lot of patients in my practice uh doc that asked me questions that, to be honest, I don't know the answers to. So this is going to be really valuable for me too. I, I thank you for coming. <laughs> Dr. Binderwal grew up in uh, Hawaii on the big island and he studied chemical engineering and pre-med at the University of Colorado, then returned to Hawaii for medical school and he completed his general surgery residency in Santa Barbara, where he met his wife, who is also a surgeon that I know very well. Dr. Isfar is an amazing colorectal surgeon. Hopefully we can have her on soon too. He then spent spent time in the Navy as a general surgeon. Uh, during his time in the military, he decided to pursue plastic and reconstructive surgery after seeing its benefits firsthand um, for a great many. And he then completed a plastic and reconstructive fellowship in San Antonio. And now he's in private practice. He's double board certified by the American Board of Surgery and American Board of Plastic Surgery and is a proud member of the American Society of Plastic Surgeons and the Texas Society of Plastic Surgeons. All of this, all of his free time, whatever free time you have is, <laughs> is devoted to his three wonderful children, his young children and his wife. And again, thank you so much, Matthew, for coming. Um, we're going to dive right in and talk about breast augmentation. So first off, uh, Doc, who's a candidate and um, what are the various reasons you see for patients coming to have this procedure done? Well, I think there's a great many candidates. Um, <laughs> Essentially, the number one reason is obviously somebody who is unsatisfied with either the shape or the sizes of their breasts uh -huh. and uh, either wants larger or better symmetry. Mm -hmm. um, who is a candidate? Pretty much anyone who fits those criteria, but also doesn't have any you know, medical contraindications for having mm -hmm. an operation. Um, right. And uh, is there a particular age group you're seeing that you're operating more on, or is it does it vary? Usually, it's younger mm -hmm. women. Um, probably the most common age group would be 20s to 30s. Okay. <laughs> and uh, it. What does the procedure entail? Can you tell us a little bit about what? Uh, well, you go obviously, through? the procedure itself yeah. starts with meeting the patient in the <laughs> office and trying right. to uh, figure out what it is that they are looking for and right. what kind of style they're looking for, and you know, making sure that you answer all their questions, making sure they don't have any reasons why they shouldn't be having that procedure. Mm -hmm. the procedure itself, the vast majority are done under general anesthesia. Mm -hmm. There are some practitioners who may elect to do that in a in a more awake setting under local, maybe some sedation, but uh, I prefer general anesthesia personally. I think right. most patients do as well. Um, and why is that? Why, why do you tend to prefer general? Well, it, it depends mm -hmm. essentially where you're placing the implant. If you're mm -hmm. placing it deep to the muscle, it's kind of difficult to elevate the muscle and actually divide the pectoralis muscle under or under local because that uh, it tends to be rather involved and painful <laughs> right. otherwise. So. And, and do you tend to go under the pectoralis muscle? I would say or? the majority of cases, yes. And what, what is your decision-making process to determine so, whether it's above or below? I mean, obviously, one of the important things that you have to take into consideration is what the patient's preference is. Okay. They may have a very 
mm-hmm. set preference or opinion on it, um, but also you want to make sure that you're doing something that is safe for the patient as well. Patients who have very, very minimal breast tissue, uh-huh. it may not necessarily be possible to put it on top of the muscle or in the subglandular position. I see. Yeah. So in that case, if you want adequate coverage over your implant, a lot of times you would want to put it below the muscle. Okay. Um, Patients who have ample breast tissue to begin with, mm-hmm. you know, you may have some opportunity to put it on top of the muscle. Okay. In patients who are particularly strength athletes, right, you may not necessarily want to be dividing part of their muscle. Mm-hmm. For the vast majority of people, that's not a big deal, but for certain competitive athletes, that may be an issue. That's a very important issue in my practice because sure. I, I deal with a lot of um, uh, bodybuilders, mm-hmm. right? And so for them... You, you find, do you find that they prefer not to separate that muscle? To well, what, once again, it kind of depends a little bit on what their uh, native breast tissue is like, okay. too. Okay, okay. Some bodybuilders are exceedingly thin, mm-hmm. may not necessarily mm-hmm. have fat or breast tissue right. to right. Uh, put that implant under. And then you may have to put it underneath the muscle, but you want to take in that take their activity into consideration and making sure that you're doing as limited release of that muscle as possible. Okay. So if they are particularly active, aside from preference, do you push them one way or another based on, for example, if they're doing a lot of pectoralis exercises, push-ups, things like that? I, I think you... for those type of exercises, yeah. it's not a bit big deal. Okay. I mean, if you're like a competitive bodybuilder, uh-huh. it may be a a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think for that standard athlete, it probably is not. And if you have, uh, as you mentioned, adequate breast tissue Mm -hmm. to be above the pectoralis, other than than that, is there any other reason why a woman may ask to have the implant placed either below or above, uh, you know, aside from how much breast tissue they have? Well, one of the other, one of the big um, differences in that procedure mm-hmm. is recovery. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you're lifting up the pectoralis muscle, typically it's a lot more uncomfortable mm-hmm. and the recovery may be longer than if you were just placing beneath the breast tissue itself. What are the different recovery times for above versus below? Um, I think it really depends on... I mean, the main difference in recovery time is when you're going to be going back to doing all your physical activities. Really, if right. you're putting it above the above the muscle, really by about three weeks, there shouldn't be, as long as you're not doing anything that's really putting tension on the skin, Okay. there's really nothing okay. you shouldn't be able to do. If you're putting it underneath the muscle, typically I tell people to wait about six weeks. Okay. And then um, what are the different types of implants that you well, can choose? <laughs> there are very many. Right. Um, probably the two most common types. Mm-hmm. All implants right now have a silicone shell, and that's essentially pretty standard. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be either smooth or textured. We can talk about that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But then it's either a silicone shell that's filled with saline, which mm-hmm. obviously is just salt and water, mm-hmm. versus a silicone shell that's filled with a silicone gel, which maybe has a consistency more like honey. Mm-hmm. And then there is be um, highly cohesive silicone gel, what people call a gummy bear type, which is a lot more firm. Okay. Sometimes can be more shaped as opposed to just round. Okay. And what are some of the reasons for choosing the different formulations? Well, the two most common are uh-huh. the, the regular saline and uh-huh. the silicone gel. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the big difference between choosing which those two things is by far the silicone gel is more popular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, people have a belief that it feels more like native breast tissue. Okay. 
And I think for the most part, that's probably true. Mm-hmm. Some of that varies a little bit on a saline implant, depending on how much it's filled with and how mm-hmm. tensely it's filled. Okay. Um, but then other reasons to choose one over the other. With silicone implants, there may be more follow-up that is necessary because you may not be necessarily know if there's a leak or if there's a problem. So it's recommended to get MRI screening in people who have had silicone implants, starting How? at three years and then okay. every other year. Okay, um, okay. Honestly, I don't know too many people who actually go through with that because it's a lot of MRIs. That is. There is a cost differential between the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, saline is typically less expensive. Okay. And for the athletic, more athletic patients that are, are going to be doing a lot more vigorous physical activity, um, is there one formulation you counsel that, that you push more on or does it not matter? I, I don't think it really matters okay. for activity-wise. Okay. And then um, what's the difference between augmentation and uh, mastopexy? Can you tell us the difference? Sure. Well, augmentation involves adding something to the breast or augmenting it. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, we're talking about implants for the most part. Mm-hmm. There is some augmentation with either fat injections or autologous flaps, which mm-hmm. may be something that is more prevalent in the future. I, I would say it's still kind of... Um, up and coming. Okay. Yeah. Mastopexy itself doesn't necessarily do anything to the volume of the breast. If anything, typically you have a little bit of loss of volume with mastopexy, but it is restoring the suspension of the breast. Okay. So it's correct correcting ptosis of the breast. Got it. Suspending it back on the chest. Got it. And then when... And those two things can be combined, by the way. Okay. And because uh, augmentation alone typically will not correct significant ptosis of the breast. Okay. Okay. And then what what type of recovery time are you looking at when you do either one, the augmentation, mastopexy? Does it depend on the formulation you have um, in the implant? I think the, the recovery time is essentially the same. For most of these things, unless you're putting an implant underneath the muscle, mm-hmm. you're really just dealing with breast tissue and skin. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're not putting excessive amounts of stretch on that skin, mm-hmm. then you should be able to do pretty much all your other regular activities. Okay. In either case, you should be up walking around the day after your procedure. You know, if you're working like in an office job, something like that, you should be able to go back within a couple of days as long as you're not taking the pain medications. Okay. Um, but real yeah. strenuous physical activity, regardless of what it is, I usually tell people about six weeks. Six weeks. And what are some of the, comp- the more common type of complications you see, or what should women be looking out for in terms of or retractions or anything. So it is not without complications. (laughs) Right. It's certainly true. Um, Probably some of the most common complications or reasons for reoperation, which is Mm -hmm. kind of the figure you look at when you're saying whether or not this is a successful operation. Mm -hmm. You know, what is your reoperative rate? Mm -hmm. For breast augmentation alone, it's usually around 20% at three years. So it's not small. Right. Um, so the number one causes for reoperation would be for things like capsular contracture, mm-hmm. which is the body forming scar tissue around the breast, which is very, that is a normal process, but sometimes it can be more intense and be either painful or distorting. Okay. So that's no, probably the number one. So what would we look at as providers and as the patient? What would you see on the outside to clue you in on that? Well, the breast may be more firm. Okay. Um, it may be tender or painful. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> may be distorted. 
usually that's not something that you know starts off right away. That's okay. something that develops over years. And some people who have had their implants in for twenty to forty years, mm-hmm. they will definitely have that. It's okay. Not a question. Okay. Um, one of the other big reasons for reoperation would be um, unsatisfactory size. We see that a lot. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you do a lot of things beforehand as far as, uh, you know, doing different sizing methods and right. talking with the patient and saying, you know, do you, what is it that you're looking for? What kind of look are you trying to achieve? Okay. So the Got best it. thing is trying to be on the same page beforehand, and I think you can eliminate some of the reoperation for size afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's just other things that with any type of surgery, there's risk of bleeding, risk of infection. Infection right. in implant surgery is always a very big deal because if it gets infected, it may necessarily may not necessarily be able to remain in the chest. And speaking of infection, just to take a little <clears throat> tangent here, uh, Dr. Bindewald, um, in terms of you and I helping patients out in the hospital, I mean, as an internist, can we talk a little bit about travel medicine? Because we do see cases from other countries that will come into our hospital. It was done somewhere else. Can you talk a little bit about the travel aspect well, of these surgeries? It's not to say that there are not excellent, qualified surgeons outside of the sure, surgery. Sure, absolutely, yep. But my my thoughts on medical tourism, and this is my opinion, obviously. Yes, of course. Is, uh, you may travel abroad. You may do that for a variety of reasons. I think mm-hmm. probably one of the more common reasons to do that is mm-hmm. price. Mm-hmm. Um, and you may have a great surgeon. You may have a great, even a great facility. Right. But once you go home, you're essentially on your own. So if you have a complication, that person is not going to be there to take care of you. You may not necessarily have any kind of adequate follow-up with them. Mm -hmm. You may not have any follow-up or contact whatsoever. I've Mm -hmm. seen that before, too. Mm -hmm. And if you do end up in the ER with a complication, who's going, you know, whose responsibility is it to take care of you at that point? I mean, if it was your surgeon, you'd like to think that they're going to take care of you. Right. They know what they did. They know the anatomy. And you're their patient. Exactly. And there's ownership. (laughs) Absolutely. So that's the problem is is typically there is. It, there are obviously cases where there is ownership, but typically there isn't. And so you're, the patient is basically assuming the best case scenario, right? You go in there, everything's going to be great, and I'm not going to need any follow-up, and that's what they plan for, right? Right, and, and so, you know, the question is, what is that based upon, too? Right. Where is that source of information that's saying that, you know, everything's going to be great with this? <laughs> right, and so cost is a factor, and so... Unfortunately, we do see patients coming into the hospital for this. And so what are some of the common types of complications that is there a common complication you see from medical tourism that you see? Well, for this procedure in particular, for, for, for particularly breast augmentation, mm-hmm. fortunately, I've not seen any specific to that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you would think of something that you would see in the immediate post-operative period. Mm-hmm. Probably the two biggest ones would be either bleeding mm-hmm. or infection. Mm-hmm. Okay. And both of those can be essentially catastrophic to your cosmetic outcome if you don't take care of them and immediately. What, what kind of things can happen cosmetically to you? Well, if you do not take care of the infection, I mean. You may try and treat that with antibiotics, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes that can be successful. Mm-hmm. There is a salvage rate. Mm-hmm. Um, if that's not successful, then the only way to eradicate that infection is actually to remove the implant. So obviously you're now talking about returning to the operating room with surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and then it may be that you know you're not going to have another implant put in for another six months afterwards, and that right. cause all kinds of problems with scarring and contracture and things. And just as a, a side question here, do you get patients coming to you say, hey, I know this costs this, but I noticed on this medical tourism site it's way cheaper. Why shouldn't I do that? Do you ever get patients that bring that up with Usually you? Usually not. <laughs> no? Okay. No. Usually... <laughs> If people are going to travel abroad, they... They made up their minds. They've usually made up their minds. Okay. But I have seen patients in the ER after trips. Yes, yes. And um, is it mainly for implants, or do you see that as a consequence of some other popular procedure? Other popular uh, procedures that I've seen, Mm -hmm. facelift. Mm -hmm. I've seen people with big hematomas in their face after returning from a trip abroad. Seen uh, seromas after abdominoplasty. And tell us, uh, our listeners, what seromas are. So, in a lot of different plastic surgery procedures, (laughs) we're essentially dividing different layers of tissue. Mm -hmm. And your body's natural response to having layers divided is to fill that space with fluid. So, either with compression or it drains, you try and prevent that from happening. But even even under the best cases, you can still have a seroma, which is just essentially a fluid collection. Okay. And um, this this podcast, the listeners here are, are very fitness inclined, mm-hmm. a lot of them. And so I know we talked about restricted restrictions basically after surgery. There really doesn't sound like there's any other than stretching of the skin. Are there particular workouts, exercises, movements that you say, hey, if you do this, you may be at risk for rupture or... Or not so much. Not so much rupture. Yeah. I mean, the, the force that takes the rupture mm-hmm. implant is pretty significant. And okay. if you are doing something that is causing your implants to rupture, then that probably has other adverse effects for you as well. Okay. That's got to be just blunt so, trauma yeah, type like things. <laughs> okay. Um, as All far right. as activity, um, I think it's important to be somewhat active immediately after surgery to cut down on your risk of complications like, you know, DVT and pneumonia and things like that. But as far as being active, um, depending if we're specific to um, breast augmentation, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, if it's, uh, if you're not doing any division of the muscle, really getting back to pretty significant activity within the first couple of weeks is probably adequate. Great. And the the other common question I get on the primary care side is that, so I've had these implants for a couple of years. Um, My 10-year mark is approaching. Do I need to get them changed? What's your your thought on that? My my opinion, once again, (laughs) is uh, if it's not bothering you, Mm -hmm. you do not have to do anything. Okay. Now, some of that may change a little bit if you have silicone implants versus saline. Mm Mm-hmm. Saline implants, if they rupture, that saline comes out, it deflates, you know immediately that you've had a leak of your implant. Silicone rupture, there's what they call a silent rupture, where the implant can rupture, Mm -hmm. but that silicone gel or silicone filling material may be contained within the capsule of the of the implant or a capsule of the breast and there may not be any definitive signs of that. You may have more of a capsular contracture so if you're having pain or if you're having some changes in your breast I think that should definitely be evaluated Mm -hmm. in those cases of silicone implants. Probably MRI is the best tool. Unfortunately it's not cheap and it's Mm -hmm. probably not covered by insurance at that point but um, that's probably 
of the best tool for looking at things like that. And if but uh, absolutely, I do not believe in taking out every ten years normal asymptomatic breast implant that someone may be very happy with just because 10 years is up. Right. And, and can you talk about the incisions <clears throat> and where they are, Doc, okay. uh, well, you there, know, typically? There are several. Mm-hmm. There are some that are more common. Probably the two most common mm-hmm. um, are inframammary, mm-hmm. being through the fold of the breast. Probably the second most common is around the areola itself. Mm-hmm. And I'd say that probably makes up, those two together probably mm-hmm. make up about 90% of all breast incisions. And is that patient preference as well, or is that something that you kind of calculate? I think that's something that there's discussion to be had. I personally prefer the inframammary incision because I think it gives you better access to the entire base of the breast. There may, in theory, be less chance of infection because you're not necessarily going through the areola and milk ducts themselves, which Mm -hmm. do harbor bacteria Mm -hmm. in a normal Mm -hmm. person. Um, Some of the other less common would be through the axilla, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and very uncommon is through the umbilicus. And what would be the advantage of going through the, other than the cosmetic issue? There'd be no scar on the breast. Right. Is there any other advantage, or is it, is it, how much more technically difficult is that for you to do, go through the umbilicus? Well, I do not do that one. Okay. But... People who do do that, mm-hmm. um, obviously, you can only use a saline implant because mm-hmm. you cannot put an entire silicone implant through the belly button up into the chest. Right. Um, and the other reason I'm not a big fan of that is mm-hmm. because dissection of the pocket endoscopically through the belly button, mm-hmm. I think, uh, technically is rather challenging. Okay. And um, the... Uh, so the 10 to 15 year question is just clearly answered here. It's, I, I want to stress it because it's yeah, so, I, I, so I, frequently asked. I get that question asked. a lot as well. Yeah. And I'm not sure who put that out there mm-hmm. or who that's serving. Okay. But I think that's absolute nonsense. So our listeners can consider that myth officially busted. It is not something. In my mind, it is. In <laughs> okay. my mind, it definitely is. Excellent. Excellent. And... Um, how, you mentioned the different uh, incisions that we have in one, you know, around the areola going through the, affecting the mammary glands. If a woman is of childbearing age and they're going to be breastfeeding, is that something you counsel against or is it not, um, does not affect breastfeeding much? It, in theory, it should not affect okay. breastfeeding. I mean, if you're putting it through the inframammary incision mm-hmm. or deep to the muscle, it shouldn't affect it at all. If you're putting it through the areola, it may affect it some. Okay. Um, but women need to understand that obviously pregnancy mm-hmm. and breastfeeding, there's going to be a lot of changes to the breast. Mm-hmm. And your breast will change. Mm-hmm. And your aesthetics may change as well. Right. It's not to say those things are not great things. Right. <laughs> but they need to understand that, that there will be changes afterwards. Absolutely. And, and and it, in terms of safety for breastfeeding or ability to breastfeed, is that affected at all when you have it when you have implants? It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Okay. And then um, cancer screening wise, does that affect how um, cancer screening is done? Mammograms, let's say. Well, if you're putting the implant beneath the muscle, it really should not affect how mammogram is done because still all the breast tissue is anterior to the muscle. If you're putting it in the subglandular position, it may make mammograms more difficult, but they can be. There are views that they can do. Okay. But you need to let your mammographer know. Okay. 
beforehand that you have implants. Okay, so so from a primary care provider standpoint, it's not something you'd have to go through, say, plastic surgery or. No, I think you should stick to all the same screening criteria. Okay. And then uh, can you tell us a little bit about the BIA ALCL issue that's in the news and undergoing hearings right now? This is something that was first uh, kind of discovered about 20 years ago, so it's not something that's relatively new. Mm -hmm. Um, What that stands for is breast implant-associated anaplastic large cell lymphoma. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's not a breast cancer, but it is actually a lymphoma that arises, is thought to arise from the capsule around the breast implant. It's very, very rare. Mm -hmm. Um, In the United States, there's been about, I think, just shy of 300 reported cases. Oh, wow. There's been nine fatalities from that. Mm. Um, I think the overall risk to women with textured implants, it's supposed to be a lot more prevalent in textured implants, although prevalent is probably not the right word since Mm -hmm. it's still very Mm -hmm. rare. But the vast majority of people who do develop this have a textured implant and uh, say the overall lifetime risk of developing it in someone who has a textured implant is somewhere between 1 in 3,000 to 1 in 30,000. Okay. Um, So the FDA has been meeting with plastic surgeons and patients and trying to come up with best practices. I see. There is no role for prophylactic explantation. Okay. But I think it's important that if there is changes in your breast to let your surgeon know. Mm-hmm. Um, usually this is something that develops long after implantation. Okay. But I think it has to be something that also has to be discussed in the informed consent uh, for breast augmentation. Absolutely, yeah. And how is there any particular type of um, uh, the implant uh, fluid, the saline versus the... No, it's it's either type. The only thing that may be different is uh, is the implant texture. Okay. Smooth versus textured. Okay. And uh, the number of cases that have been linked to smooth, it's questionable because they haven't really necessarily verified all the information, mm-hmm. whether or not it was only a smooth implant case. And smooth? The vast majority are related to ones that are textured. Okay. And smooth versus textured, is that also a patient preference? Or, um, is, or is there a rhyme or reason to that, choosing one or the other? I personally do not use any textured implants. Okay. I think it's more if you're using a shaped implant. Okay. Or if you're putting it in a subglandular position. But if you're putting implant around implant under the muscle, there's no reason to even to do that. use a textured implant. Okay. And tell us if you could, Dr. Bindewal, the future trends in this realm of augmentation. Where's it going? Well, everybody's trying to build a better implant. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. There's all, all the implant companies out there working on that. But then I think one of the other things that people are more interested in is maybe doing an augmentation without an implant. And there are some people who would recommend doing that with large volume of fat grafting, mm-hmm. um, maybe with some external tissue expansion, which is essentially like a vacuum expansion of the chest hmm. with okay. uh, fat grafting. I think fat grafting is not quite there for <laughs> augmentation alone. I think it does have a role in um, revision of reconstruction. Okay. But for the volume that you would need to actually augment mm-hmm. a breast, I think it's not quite there yet, but maybe something in the future. Okay. So is that used much at all then, the, just the fat uh, method or not really? Fat grafting is used, as I said, 
when I use it, I usually would use it in the setting of just kind of revision. Okay. Of a reconstructed breast, usually. More like fine-tuning, not yeah. just... But to, when you're talking about transferring the amount of fat that you would need to actually mm-hmm. augment the breast... Right. ...and right. trying to have that fat graft, it's not as... Um, Reliable is how much of that volume is going to remain. I see. And the volume that the fat graft that does not survive may degenerate into oil cysts. Oh, okay. So then you start okay. getting texture problems and mm. size problems. So I think, I think there's some work that still needs to be done. But is that being that done may... in the medical tourism realm too? The fat grafting, or it's all being done. It's all... <laughs> medical tourism is all being. Done. You can do whatever you want. You, right? you can, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, that's one of the other things about medical tourism. It's not you don't have the FDA or regulatory bodies right. watching over you. Right. And those things may be good things that you have I'd some regulation. Believe it or not, yeah, sometimes <laughs> they're good. But it they it there's an expense yeah. associated with it, which is um, well worth it. So it and just to close up, what what are some of the are there any reservations that patients typically have or misconceptions that they come in with that um, you, you have to field that's that's a common misconception. Well, with respect to breast augmentation, augmentation. It's, it's not uh, you know it doesn't fix everything. Yeah. For example, we talked a little bit about mastopexy. Putting a big implant in is not going to solve someone who has a lot of ptosis in their breast. Okay. Um, there are also, you know, there may be other areas outside the breast itself that mm-hmm. are contributing to the deformity of the chest that they have mm-hmm. um, can be skeletal deformities or alterations that are not going to be solved with breast augmentation alone. So I think it's important that you uh, discuss these things with the patient make sure you address them prior to surgery rather mm-hmm. than trying to address them after the surgery. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bindewal. That was really helpful and to me as well. So now I'll be able to at least, I'm really happy to bust the 10, 15 year mark. Yeah, that, that's well, a big... That, that <laughs> deserves it. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming by, Dr. Bindewald. Um, I'd like to thank Founding Media for hosting us and thank you so much guys for tuning in. See you next time. The Apple A Day Doc Talk podcast team includes me, Dr. Ram Dean, producer Mariah Gossett, and audio engineer Jake Wallace. Thank you to everyone at Founding Media for your support. The Apple A Day Doc Talk is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Instagram at RamDeanMD, spelled R-A-M-D-E-E-N-M-D or check out the link to my YouTube channel and website in the show notes. Thanks for listening.